As we come to the sixth chapter of Genesis, let me warn you that what we are about to read is X-rated material. X-rated, that is, by the standards of our pluralistic, humanistic culture. The Bible as a whole is offensive to the world's way of thinking, we know, but these words before us this morning are particularly offensive because they strike at the root of everything that the world wants to believe about itself and everything that the world wants to believe about God. Genesis 6 reveals that man is depraved. There is a perfect creator to whom we are accountable. Just think of this on a billboard out on the highway, if you might think of it in those terms. Man is depraved. There's a perfect creator to whom we are accountable, but mankind naturally and violently engages in an all-out, all-encompassing rebellion against him. And what is more, God responds by killing sinners. Please come to Eden Baptist Church. <laughs> it's not a common, not common words, are they, in our world, in our culture. You won't hear these things on the evening news or on the lips of your unsaved acquaintances. As the world sees it, what we are saying here and what this text of Scripture reveals is X-rated material. It's immoral, as our world defines it. But this passage deals very much with God's people as well. It does not simply reveal that sinners are very, very evil and that God judges sinners, but it also warns believers that this depraved and godless world can and does exercise powerful influence upon us. We are brought to terms with the reality that not only are we seeking to win the world, but the world is seeking to win us. And with great success, this passage delivers a heavy dose of reality. It, does, it is not written for sensitive ears, not written for those with a theology that's candy-coated with an I'm okay, you're okay veneer. But let me encourage you, although this is a passage revealing some very harsh realities, it is a passage which points us to great hope. That's the hope about which we've been singing here this morning. But first of all, as we come into Genesis 6, let's put it in its context, particularly for those that maybe have not been with us here last week or the two weeks uh, preceding this sermon. But go back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3.15, we find here in the curse upon the serpent in the garden, Adam and Eve have fallen into sin here, and on the curse that this, upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush or better strike your head and you will strike his heel, be the way that the Hebrew reads. There are two offsprings here. And there is a face-off between the two, which culminates in a war between two single representatives which will strike a mutual death blow. That is the seed of the Gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and the rest of the Bible will develop that theme. As we trace then that thought through chapter 4, go if you will to chapter 4 and verse 8. You notice there that Cain says to his brother Abel, Abel is the righteous one, Cain, the ungodly one here. That's described in the first verses of chapter 4. But he says in verse 8, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now in verse 9 and following, God deals with Cain and Cain rejects God. In verse 17, we see the establishment of Cain's city. 
In verse 18 of chapter 4, we have the first genealogy. This is Cain's line, the offspring of the serpent. Cain is now the one who will lead this offspring, and his children will be that offspring. Ultimately, will culminate, of course, in Satan himself as he battles Christ at the cross. In verse 24 of chapter 4, verse 24, following hard on Lamech's boastful poem in verses 23 and 24, uh, in verse 25 then, rather, we have Adam being introduced, laying with his wife, giving birth to Seth. We have then in chapter 5, following this brief introduction, a lengthy description of Seth's line. We looked at that last week. God's people are found in Genesis chapter 5. Remembering again at this point in time, on that side of the cross, at that stage of redemption history, salvation was identified with a physical line of people, culminating at the very end in Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, but a man who had a genealogy. And that genealogy, this genealogy of Genesis 5, is leading to Jesus Christ as the single representative prophesied in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of Satan. Now, last week, as we put these two genealogies together in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, and all of chapter 5, we'll just call them Cain's line and Seth's line. As we put those two together and contrasted them, we found there were many lines of contrast. Cain's line is epitomized by whom? Verses 23 and 24, by Lamech and his great boast. Uh, first of all, we might mention his children in verses 21 and 22. There is a developing culture. I'm in chapter five, verses twenty or chapter four, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. You see the developing culture there of the world and of Cain's line, and that mention there. May I insert it one more time? Of Nema, one daughter mentioned. Her name means beautiful. She's part of Cain's line. We then went to verses twenty-three and twenty-four into Cain's boast. Actually, Lamech's boast here, but in Cain's line, he boasts with self-sufficient arrogance. He has no need for God. Who is it that epitomizes Seth's line, the godly line in chapter five? We noted last week Enoch, who in verses twenty-one through twenty-four walked with God, and we noted Noah in verses twenty-eight through thirty-two, according to chapter. Uh, 6 and verse 9, he also walked with God. So Seth's line is epitomized by these two men who walk with God in righteousness, Cain's line by this boastful Lamech in the city of Cain, in the city of man, speaking of, his, of, of having no need of God, taking care of himself, doing things his own way, marrying two wives and the like. Now here's a profound thought for you. Put all this together. Chapter 6 follows chapters 4 and 5, all right? Very simple, but chapter 6 follows chapters 4 and 5, and that does prove to be profound as we develop the text. Two lines are carefully traced and contrasted to this point. Noah introduced and highlighted as the representative of the godly line right at the end there of chapter 5. Chapter 6 purposefully I believe, and very nicely builds upon what has been established in chapters 4 and 5. It doesn't just drop in out of space somewhere. All of a sudden we have this bombshell of this different situation. But it is contrast, It is building on the contrast of these two lines. 
Now let's look then with that in mind at verse 1 of chapter 6. Genesis 6 and verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal or flesh. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now again, as we come to Genesis 6 here, in these first few verses, I'm suggesting, and I firmly believe, that they are developing the contrast of the two lines in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Earth's population is obviously expanding. As we go back to chapter 6 and verse 1 of Genesis, Earth's population is expanding. This means generally that God is continuing to bless mankind, chapter 1, verse 28. He blesses them with the commission to fill the earth and to subdue it. The gracious hand of God is upon humanity. Here there, is chil there are children being born. But what does it also indicate? There's always that sinister subplot, or maybe in some ways the main plot, and that is that the city of Cain is growing as well. The godless culture identified with the city of Enoch and the line of Cain is expanding. Children are being born. Culture is being pressed. And in that setting, we come to verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them as they chose. We have two parties here which call for identification. The sons of God on the one hand and the daughters of men. As I mentioned, it's important to remember chapter 6 follows chapters 4 and 5. Considering the context and considering that there is no formal introduction to these sons of God, it seems best to me to identify these men as members of Seth's godly line. We could translate, I think it would be fair, not fair to translate the Hebrew this way, the Hebrew reads the sons of God, but to understand it, I think we could call them the men of God. Men of God, men in the line that are following God. People identified with those who walk with God, Noah and Enoch, and people identified, chapter 4 and verse 26b, remember that, who gather together to call on the name of the Lord. That's these men. Now, if you have further question on that, I know that's not always the way it's presented. We gave about 15 lines of proof this morning in the adult class. If you count them all up, uh, why we believe that is the case, and it very much impacts the rest of, the, of where we go from here. But I think there's some very solid ideas, very solid proof that these are, these sons of God are men of God. They are men of Seth's line. Now, who are the daughters of men? I don't think it matters. Some would say that they are of the line of Cain, but I don't know that that's necessary. We have in verse 1, it says, men are expanding on the earth, and the daughters of men in verse 2. They're just daughters. They're just women, whoever they might be, whoever's line they might fall in, they're, they're just women. What the emphasis, the emphasis of the text is not on who the daughters are, the emphasis of the text is on what? This is brought out even more in the Hebrew, but verse 2 reads in the Hebrew, saw the sons of God, the daughters of men. That word saw is, is emphasized by placing it at the beginning of the sentence. They saw, the Hebrew ra'ah. Emphasized here, what did they see? They saw beauty. They saw women who were very attractive as they looked upon them. 
That Hebrew word for beauty is the word tov. Now think about it. We have seeing and we have seeing beauty. Where have we encountered that before in the text? These are the same words following in almost the identical order of chapter 3 and verse 6, where it says Eve saw the fruit and that it was tov, good. So these men, these sons of God, see, and that's emphasized, these beautiful women who are tov, they're good, they're beautiful, just like, I'm not saying that the connection is necessarily stressed, but the same terminology is there, just as Eve saw the fruit and saw that it was good, it was beautiful, it was pleasant to the eye. So godly men were drawn by the beauty of women, and they married any of them they chose. That, I think, is the point of verse 2. They saw these beautiful women, and they married any of them they chose. These are very common words in the Hebrew for marriage. Very common, found in other places of a simple marriage. What attracted these men? Beautiful women. What was their motivation? Sensual pleasure. What guideline did they follow? The desire of their own heart. What decision did they make? Marriage. Now where have we encountered that before? We have Lamech, the representative, the final spokesman for the the line of Cain in chapter 4, standing up and saying, I don't need God and evidencing that in chapter 4 and verse 19 by marrying two wives. He chose whomever he wanted from his own will. And what we have now, it appears to me, are godly men who are born into this godly line, who are growing up hearing about God, worshiping God, praying with God's people, identifying as the people of God in distinction from the people of the world, and and, and now looking and saying, I will choose whoever I want as my wife. There may be some indication here of polygamy. We don't know. It seems that that's very possible. They choose any of them that they wanted. That brings us back then, one more connection with where we've been, and that is chapter 4 and verse 22. Go back to chapter 4, 22. As the culture of the godless line is being developed, we have there a mention at the end of verse 22 in chapter 4, Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. We don't find any other women in either of these genealogies. They're all traced through men. We would at least assume most of them firstborn, possibly. Not necessarily Seth wasn't, but there's all these men. So-and-so gave birth, begot this man, and begot this man, and begot this man, and begot this man. But there's this Nama, this one woman identified here in Cain's line, and her name means beautiful. It seems safe to say that some, if not the majority, of the daughters of men were in fact identified with the beautiful women of the line of Cain. There was in that culture a development of the external and the part of these women, and God's people began to believe that they could walk with God and enjoy the best the world had to offer. Maybe some of them even visited the city of Enoch. I I don't know, it's just conjecture, but maybe they did. In some place, they seemed to have identified these women as beautiful women and to choose any of them that they wanted. Maybe they went into the city and said, you know, they're not going to kill us here. It's okay. We can go into the city and look, there's a, there's a lot of... Have you heard word? 
there's a lot of beautiful women over there. Let's, let's go check it out. And they went over there, and sure enough, or wherever they encountered them, they saw them, they were attracted by them physically, and they said, I want to marry that woman. These unions, however, they were initiated for tragic results. Because we read then in verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. Then, you see that in verse 3, that, that transitional word, then. That is, this is a consequence of what is recorded in verse 2. God responds to the decision of the sons of God by declaring, my spirit will not contend forever. That word contend, or the King James strive, means to judge, to plead, to contend. The idea of exercising government. So we have here the Spirit of God, in a sense, hovering over humanity. Remember in verse 2 of chapter 1, He hovered over the creation. He attended to it. He watched over it. We see that, that, that chaotic state when God first brought the elements into being, but the Spirit of God is hovering. Don't be afraid, He says. It's a chaotic state in here in creation, but the Spirit is hovering. He's superintending. That's what we have here. It's a godless, wicked world, but the Spirit of God is still hovering. He's still attending. He's still judging. He's still working with humanity, but God says, I'm going to bring it to an end. And just as will happen in the future tribulation period, God determines to suspend the restraining work of the Spirit of God. That is frightening. Why does He do that? As the NIV puts it there in verse 3, He, for He is mortal. I will suspend the work of the Spirit of God for He is mortal. Uh, that's not a good translation. If that, you have that word mortal in there or in the, in the margin something else, if you need to have the word flesh there. Put it down the margin, if not something else, if you can write in there. That word translated mortal should really be flesh. It's a theological term. Man is depraved. He is fleshly. He is corrupt. When Adam and Eve violated God's will in the garden, mankind became sinful by nature to the core. That is defined in the Scriptures as the flesh. Even though the sons of man were in a godly line, even though they knew God and gathered with His people to pray, they were still flesh, and flesh sins. I don't think the word is filled up with all of the nuances of the New Testament, but it is that same concept. We are flesh. We are fallen people. And now that the godly line has been corrupted, God chose to put an end to fleshly living. We read then the terms of God's judgment there at the end of verse 3. His days will be 120 years. Now many interpret this to be 120 years is the lifespan. I mean, people were living to be 900 years, and God says, now I'm going to cut it down to 120 years. I've always believed that uh, until just a few years ago, but as I look through again in the context, I don't think that's the point. I think that the point, and again, we see many living much longer than 120 years, and that always confused me. Why is it that he says your life's going to be 120 years and they all go live longer? We know that later statement of Scripture that our years are 70, and we understand people live a bit longer than 70, but when you get to the average, it's around 70. That's a general figure. If we said of our culture today a general figure of lifespan is 120, you'd say, where are you living? I want to move there or something. I mean, that, this doesn't fit. But nor does 120 fit with what we find in the rest of Scripture. There's people living much longer than that. I think the 120-year limit is the time between now and the flood. 
I'm going to let the Spirit of God contend with people. I'm going to give an opportunity for repentance for 120 more years. Time for a man by the name of Noah to build a big box and to preach righteousness and to give people that opportunity. But God measures out a period of grace. The Spirit will contend, hoping for repentance. We encounter then at this point an important parenthetical statement. Verse 4, we could put in parentheses, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Who are these Nephilim? We notice there in verse 4 that they are the Nephilim. Identifying carefully a specific group of people. There's some debate as to the meaning of this word, but I think it means strong one or mighty one. That's again fits perfectly within the context. The other idea that's, that's noted does not fit so well. But uh, they are mighty, they are strong ones, they are valiant, great people. In Numbers 13 and verse 33, this word is used of giants, but the concept does not demand physical stature. It could refer to men of gigantic influence as well as men of gigantic stature. These, I believe, these Nephilim are the Lamechs and the Enochs of Cain's line. Enoch, the name of the city named after him, and Lamech, the one who boasts and stands up and says, I need no God, I'll take care of myself. These are the mighty men that are developing to do just that, to take care of themselves. And when someone punches them or hits them, as we find in in Lamech's poem in chapter 4, he kills them. He takes care of it. He doesn't need God's vengeance. He'll take care of things on his own. These types of individuals are rising up within the culture. The text will bear out that the renown in view here is man's eye, in man's eyes, in God's eyes, who are the men of renown in this passage. Men like Seth, men like Abel, men like Enoch that walked with God, and men like Noah. Those are the people of renown in God's eyes. But these are men of renown in people's eyes. Now, if we look carefully at the text, you follow me here carefully, it is obvious that these Nephilim were on the earth when the sons of God went into the daughters of men. You see that in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of, of men. They were on the earth in those days. That means they were already on the earth when this unholy union took place. And they were on the earth after this holy unholy union took place. So why mention these Nephilim, these great mighty leaders? What purpose? If these are not the children of this, of this union, which they're not because they were already there when the unions took place for the first time, then why in the world mention them? There's a very important reason. And that is the, the significance of these Nephilim is this, that phrase at the end of verse 4, they were the heroes of old men of renown. They does not refer necessarily to the Nephilim. The they, at the end of verse 4, the heroes of old, the men of renown, are the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now hang with me for a little bit. We have this. sons of We have Nephilim on the earth. All right, they're here. Then this unholy marriage takes place between the men of God and daughters of men, whoever they chose, and the children become 
of this union people of renown, great, mighty people. In other words, they became Nephilim. They weren't the Nephilim, only themselves, but they joined ranks with the Nephilim. They became mighty, prominent people in, this, in the culture of earth as it expands. The significance is this. Although their fathers had been born into the godly line of the Sethites, these children did not hold Abel or Seth as their heroes. They idolized, it appears, the Nephilim, the Lamechs of Cain's line. They longed to join the power brokers of the world system, and they did. And imagine it. They were believers, God's people, the hated, the despised, the minority, but what a coup they became. They attained to a place of prominence in the world. I'm sure there was great rejoicing. There was great pride. We can be God's people, and we can be people of prominence as well. We can have the praise of man, and we can have a knowledge of God. But God wasn't rejoicing, was he? As God saw it, believing fathers of one generation had failed to resist the attraction of the world's parade. They saw beautiful women marching down the street, and they could not help but join in at the back of the line, grabbing all that they chose now in one generation, their children are at the head of the parade. But what a tremendous price they paid. But before we get to that, can I park for a moment and talk to you by way of application? First of all, to parents. As old as this account is, it hits us right where we are, doesn't it? Christian parent... You have great ambitions for your children. Make sure that they are God's ambitions. Who are your children's heroes today? I'm not of the mind that we can or necessarily should try to determine that for them. I don't think that's possible. You can force a hero upon them and they'll just silently love somebody else all the more. I think it's a matter of maturity. But if your children's heroes are musicians who lead godless lives, whether Christian or non-Christian, if they're athletes, if they're politicians, if they're wealthy people, if they're models, if they're dancers, if they're movie actors and entertainers and the like, we need to be very cautioned because we all tend to become what we look at. And just maybe one of the reasons your children idolize the godless is that they are keying off of a lust for the world that is displayed in your life. A silent notion that just kind of comes out that you'd like to be like the world. And for them, the way to identify with that and the way to expand that and the way to play off of it is to idolize some figure in the world that is godless. And just maybe the reason they idolize the world's greats is that we have done nothing to point them to the real heroes of this world. Maybe you need to read to them the story of King David all over again, of Jim Elliot, of David Brainerd, of Adoniram Dutchen, of Amy Carmichael, of Hudson Taylor, of William Tyndale, of John Huss. If you want an athlete, 
Maybe it's better to point them away from a Michael Jordan to an Eric Little. Read to them from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. But then maybe, when it comes down to it, we fear that if we do these kinds of things, our children just might emulate those people. Maybe down deep, you really hope they don't risk their life or maybe their opportunity for wealth and ease for the cause of Christ. In this fallen world, it's very tempting for us to pursue worldly wealth and fame for our children while doing much less to pursue their holiness. How God must weep when He watches increasing numbers of Christian children in our land secure good-paying jobs, advance up the corporate ladder, marry attractive mates, bear capable good children, but set God on the periphery of their lives. Who are our heroes? What end are we pursuing? And then a word on beautiful women, or handsome men, for that matter. And here I address my comments, I guess, directly to those of you who are not married, children, young people, singles among us. Please understand there is nothing evil. This text is saying, is not saying this. There is nothing evil with external beauty. Nothing inherently wrong with being attracted to someone of the opposite sex. But Christian young persons, single adults that are looking to marriage, God is asking you to do something that is absolutely insane from the world's perspective. He commands that you drastically limit your options. He commands that you draw a tight circle around yourself and you place on the outside of that circle every person that is not godly. No matter how good they look or how well they treat you. And God also demands that you put on the outside of that circle any Christian whom he does not want you to marry for whatever reason. Well, that cuts down the circle pretty close, doesn't it? That draws tight limits around our options. I know that many dismiss it as just foolishness, but I think when it comes to choosing a mate, young person, that is one of the greatest steps of faith that you will ever take. You must trust in God. You must do what he says. You must follow through. He will take care of you in his own way. It may not be exactly what you envision or just as you want, but he'll change your wants. He will take care of you. I know that by faith, but I also know that by the experience of others, and I also know that by my own experience. I remember one day in a public high school, 17 years of age. I was passing the time in the high school lounge, student lounge. It was just a free-for-all. It was kind of like a wild study hall. You could just sit out there in these chairs, and it was nice out. You could go outside, and it was a social hour. Um, I was there. I'll never forget the day. It uh, was a defining moment uh, for me in, in God's gracious providence. A girl came into that lounge, far more popular than I was, uh, and she came up to me and said some things that were very flattering. 
and made it very clear. She had been drinking. She'd slipped off the premises and had uh, had a few beers and came back and it loosened her tongue a little bit. And she made it clear to me that she'd been far too cautious to say anything. But now with the alcohol helping her out, she wanted to make it clear to me that, that, I, that she was mine. To this day, I have never seen a person on planet Earth with a more perfect complexion. And I honestly say that. And now, it might be the, fa the, the haze of a 17-year-old, but I, I don't think so, because I thought that before she ever talked to me. There was not a flaw on her. And uh, she was a very beautiful woman. She didn't look 17. She looked at least 22 and was very popular with the men of the school. But you know something? As a Christian man, she was not an option. Now, I say that humbly because it's God's great grace that got me through that. Not that there was no desire. As these men in this passage I saw, and what I saw was very beautiful and very attractive, but she was not an option. Now, there was another girl in that same lounge who had all kinds of blemishes. She was cute, but, you know, the freckled face and all of that, she was an option. Not one that I ever exercised, but I just draw that to say there were people that were an option, but this woman was not. She did not love God. And as a Christian man, by God's grace, I knew that she was not an option. Well, as the world would look at this option between, let's just take these two individuals sitting there in that very same lounge, they'd say, you're nuts! Go for the best! That's exactly what I did that day. By God's grace, I went for the very best that He had to give me. I placed that worldly girl on the outside of my circle, and I eventually met my beautiful wife. And my relationship with Beth Miller is better today because, by God's grace, I never got involved with the girl in that lounge. Sometimes I'm just overwhelmed by the grace of God, how He leads us through and cares for us. What I'm saying, young people, is that there is a beauty in godliness which this world cannot match. The world can parade before us their namas by sheer force of number and by virtue of the fact that God tends to choose the weak of the world for His own the world would do a good job of tempting you. But never forget that physical beauty is not evil, but godly character is the greatest beauty of all. Don't let anyone without genuine beauty get inside the small circle of your limited options. And from that point on, put it in the hands of God. Do what is right and leave the rest to Him. Well, let's get back to the path where we, from which we've strayed. God's men lusted after beautiful women. Without regard to God's will, they chose whoever they wanted. They gave birth to children who continued in their father's worldly frame of mind and became prominent in the worldly culture. I would suspect again that their parents were, were very proud of them, but what a horrible price they would pay for their compromise. For we read in verse 5 that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. We have here what God saw. God's people had not influenced the world. They had been influenced by it. As the godly married outside of God's will, fewer and fewer godly people roamed planet earth. 
with the result that there was a pervasive wickedness. God saw that man's wickedness on the earth was great. It was huge. And that the inclinations of the King James, the imaginations, we could translate the Hebrew, the purposes of his thoughts was only evil continually. That word inclination is a word that was often used of a potter that was forming something out of the clay. So by way of analogy, God had formed man out of the dust of the earth and now man was forming in his own mind thoughts that were godless and wicked and violently opposed to the Creator. This is what the Creator saw. How did this make him feel? Verse 6, the Lord was grieved that He had made man on earth and His heart was filled with pain. There's emotion there. There's feeling there. God is cut to His heart. It pains Him that He's done this that he's created man. I don't know how to explain that. I just know what the text says. He did create, and yet there's an emotional response, a pain for what he has done. You understand as God's people. I don't think any unbeliever could begin to understand what it means that God's heart is pained over sin. But for those of us who know God and are learning to hate sin and who have had one of those dark days where the flesh holds sway and where it seems that even for us, every purpose of our thoughts of our heart is evil all day long, we know what it's like to pain the heart of God, at least to a little degree. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life had won the day in man's experience, and God looked down and grieved. Families who had served God for generations were now led by sons who served self and the flesh. God's heart ached. They weren't at the, at the front of God's people worshiping and praying and living for Him and walking with Him. They were at the front of the world's parade and they were leading it. This is what he felt, grief. So what does he decide? Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. I'll blot them out. I'll wipe them off the face of the earth. This scourge, this man that I've created, I'll annihilate him. I'll kill him. I rue the day I made him. You know, there are a number of rival accounts of the flood in ancient documents. The flood narrative is not the oldest or by any means unique in the sense of dealing with the flood. But there's one thing that makes this account unique. Now, I think all of these accounts stem from survival of oral tradition from Noah and his sons who survived the flood. But as people got this information, they began to do just what our, we're doing in our culture with science. They twist it into a myth to say what they wanted to say and to believe what they want to believe. And so they began to twist this story about the flood. And you know that every last one of them makes no mention of the sin of man as the cause of the flood. Just this account. God is grieved. The Akkadian, uh, there's an Akkadian, a Babylonian account. Uh, Victor Hamilton points out that the Babylonian account pictures the god Enil as having insomnia because the population got too great. I suppose when the earth, you think about when people were first born, there were times where it was completely quiet, or at least without, other than the animals, but it, all these people started being born, and as this account goes, this God had insomnia. He couldn't sleep because of all the people, so he decided to wipe them out with a flood. 
the other account, the Gilgamesh account, just goes this far. It says of the gods, when their heart led the great gods to produce the flood. That's it. But this account says what? I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. I'm grieved that I've made him. Why? Because God saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth. It was us. It was our sin. It was our depravity that led God to judge the world with the flood. But all of man's accounts steer clear of the notion of any responsibility. God tells us the truth. And as the book of Revelation reveals, that is exactly where we are right now headed again. To a complete collapse. Moral depravity breaking down our cultures, breaking down our world system to the point where there will be an all-out rebellion against God. Even in the millennium, as that 1,000-year period comes to a close, a massive force of people will gather together to dethrone the perfect ruler, Jesus Christ. Humanity is rotten to the core. Flesh is what we are. And because we're flesh, we sin. We are on a painstakingly slow course toward destruction. If we as God's people do not understand this, if we do not believe it, it's only because we are being influenced by this dying world. But don't turn out the lights just yet. As heavy as this is, there's hope. As long as God is God, there's hope. And so we read, and I only introduce it today, for Lord willing, next week, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This was still, there was still one man left who walked with God. And for this man, God will make a way of salvation from the pending destruction of the wicked world. Here is the ray of hope that pierces through the gathering storm clouds. It's a depraved world. It's a fallen world. There's violent wickedness, but we don't have to drown in it. The answer is not politics. The answer is not luck. The answer is not isolation. The answer is grace. In one sense, Noah deserves to drown with the godless world because he too was flesh. But by walking with God, Noah found favor. And I trust that you too have found that same favor with God. It's all of grace. It's not what we have done. It's not what Noah did. But it's an act of mercy and grace on the part of God to rescue us from this fallen world. We've dealt with harsh realities today. And also with real hope. The harsh realities of a fallen, cursed, dying, sinful world but the real hope that there is in Jesus Christ salvation. I trust you'll take these themes with you this week. That if you know Christ as Savior, you will rejoice in your salvation and that you'll seek to bring others on the ark of the salvation of Jesus Christ. That we as well would be tempered by the harsh realities of a fallen world. And I say to any here among us, who may not be sure and confident of your personal relationship with God, you're not sure that you walk with God, that God would say that in His book about you. He walks with God. She walks with God. If you don't know for sure that you are spared from the destruction that is coming again upon this world, you can be sure today 
by God's grace, He will save you. We'd love to show you how that might be possible from the Scriptures between you and the Lord. It's a transaction that must take place. And I point you to it today. If you say, oh, the world's not that bad, I'm not that bad, you'll have to deal with the consequences of that choice. But if you realize something in the Spirit of God is contending with your spirit and is saying, yes, I know there is sin and I know that I am a sinner, let me assure you that Noah found grace in God's eyes and you may as well. Father, we bow and we pray and leave before you any who knows you not as Savior.